Well, it's truly a joy to be here with you this morning. Anytime a missionary gets a chance to come back and preach in English, it's always a joy. And you never know. You know, I got to preach a couple months ago. You never know if you're going to get invited back. They may be like, okay, that's enough of you. When do we get rid of this guy? But it's always a joy. The elders have been so gracious. Thank you for the opportunity to come and preach the Word of God. And I do want to thank you, thank Lakeside. So many of you have supported us through my wife's medical condition and situation with the brain tumor. You've loved us. You've prayed for us. You've cared for us. You've brought pie to my house. You have really blessed us. So I just want to thank you for all that you've done. You know, one of the most common questions that I get as a missionary is this. You ready? Buckle up. Here it comes. What's the one thing you didn't expect? The one thing that was most surprising, what's the greatest thing that you've learned overseas? Now, I recognize what they're after. They want to know if I have eaten camel brain, gotten attacked by an angry goat, you know, things like that, super spiritual things, something cultural, something missionary-like. I have eaten goat brain. I'm sure the goat was angry that I was eating its brain, but I don't think that's what they were talking about. Without fail, without hesitation, my response is always the same. Always, every time. It hasn't changed from day one. The answer is this. Before I became a missionary, I thought I was godlier than I actually am. I thought I was more spiritual. I mean, I've been to seminary. I was a pastor. I have experience in the Christian life. I'm going overseas. And God says, no, you're not, you're not as spiritual as you think you are, Chris. Types of challenging trials and difficulties we have experienced these past eight and a half years living in the poor Muslim country of Albania have revealed a lot about our spiritual maturity, or in my case, the lack thereof. As many of you know, last October, my wife Shelly began having some eye pain, some decreased vision in her right eye. The Albanian ophthalmologist that we went to see said, your eye's fine, but the symptoms are significant enough, I think you should go get an MRI. Well, sure enough, the MRI confirmed that there was a tumor in her brain. Two days later, we're meeting with the Albanian neurologist who's looking at the chart and saying, it's a tumor. We don't know exactly what it is or what kind it is. We have no tests that will be able to help you. Basically, we can do nothing to help you. You need to urgently go back to America where they can help you. And I'm thinking, God, why? I mean, I don't know if you remember, but remember when we first went over in 2008, Whitney got a stick in her eye, emergency airlift, you know, 18 trips to Greece. Remember that? Haven't we learned this? It's like, who hit the repeat button? I did not hit the repeat button, okay? Brain tumor? Why? God, we came here to serve you. This is a little distracting. We don't deserve this. Well, during these past months, there were times when I felt like God had abandoned me, put me in the middle of a desert, no hope, especially when I opened up the 
MRI report. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. We did the MRI in the morning. I took Shelly home so she could rest. That afternoon, they called me and they said, it's ready. Get on my moped. Yes, I drive a moped. Hopefully, I can keep my man card. Get on my moped. I drive back to the hospital. I go in. They give me it. In Albania, they still use the big film. They hand me this big thing. There's a report inside. I go out of the hospital. I sit on my moped, and I open it up with trembling hands. The report's in Albanian. I pull it out. I read it. My wife has a tumor. Because you know what tumor is in Albanian? Tumor. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. And in that moment, it hit me. My wife could die. Today. Tomorrow. A week from now. A month from now. This is serious. Now, if we had the time, I'm sure we could take the time and march each and every one of you, put you in front of a mic, and you could share a similar story, a difficulty, a trial that you have been through. Maybe it's a medical situation. Maybe you've lost someone that you love. Maybe you're going through a horribly difficult divorce, or you've just gone through one, and you feel all alone. Maybe you have a rebellious child, and no matter how much you preach the gospel, live the gospel, pray, they don't seem to care. And parents, is there anything more painful than a rebellious child in our life? It breaks your heart. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you're sitting here this morning with a Christian smile on your face, but you are depressed. You are without hope. You are alone, and nobody knows. Maybe you have financial problems. You don't know how you're going to pay your mortgage. In fact, even this church, Lakeside Bible Church, has been through a number of significant trials recently, hasn't it? And you have walked with them through that. Well, thankfully, when we ask God why, the Bible isn't silent. The Bible tells us the purpose of God's testing, the purpose of trials. And this morning, we are going to look briefly at the purpose of God's testing for Israel on their journey to the promised land. So you can turn with me and open up to Exodus chapter 15. Now, you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, aren't they? I mean, after all, they made a cartoon... Right? And didn't, didn't there, wasn't there a movie? I haven't seen it, but there was a movie that just came out, right? I'm sure that was super biblical. Hollywood made it. The Exodus. What was it called? God, no, you're like, I'm not going to announce that. Something like Gods and Kings or something. Are we familiar with the story of the Exodus? And you remember the story. Maybe as a kid you heard it growing up. You remember that God had chosen Moses to go to Egypt in order to lead Israel out of slavery from the Pharaoh. God ultimately delivers Israel. You remember all of the plagues that he sent to finally break Pharaoh so Pharaoh would release the Israelites. He delivers them. And here in Exodus 15, we find Israel singing a song of praise to the Lord. Man, I wish I could have been there. 
all those years of slavery. And again, what has just happened right before Exodus 15? Remember that whole Red Sea parting thing? Yeah, that has just taken place. Can you imagine being there and seeing God part a sea? And all of you and your people get across. Pharaoh's army comes across and what happens? They're dead. Our God's bigger than your God. Right? God is big. He's our deliverer. Did Moses do that? Did Israel do that? No, that was God. We're convinced of it. And so they're singing this song in Exodus 15, a song of praise to the Lord. Now that God has miraculously saved them, what do you think Israel expects God to do? Again, what did he promise Abraham way back in Genesis? Leave the land you're in and go to a land that I will give you. If you are faithful, if you fear me, and you do what I say, I will bring you and give you this promised land. I will multiply your descendants. I will bless you, and through you bless the earth. And so Israel is expecting this faithful covenant-keeping God to fulfill that promise, to take them from the difficulty of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Life is good. It can only get better, right? We have that expression, oh, it's all downhill from here. Right. Look at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Great. God miraculously saves us from bondage to Egypt, only to bring us into the wilderness, into the desert, to die of thirst. Thanks, God. One might say, out of the fire, into the frying pan. Literally. Chapter 16, Israel grumbles that they have no food. Again, if you don't have water and food, what happens to you? I'm not trying to trick you. What happens to you? You don't have water and you don't have food. What happens to you? Yeah, and is it pretty? No. It's horrific. Agonizing. It's bad. In fact, Israel struggles all the way to the promised land, don't they? One step after the next. One step after the next. They get to the promised land and God says, send out your spies into the land. God tells them, if you do what I say, I will deliver you. I will conquer these people, and you will have this land. This is the promised land. They send in their spies. They go in, and they see, like, really strong, big people. All the ites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, all the ites. They're all, all the ites are there, including the people called the Nephilim. You remember the Nephilim? When I was in junior high, I think that one of the kids in my junior high was a descendant of the Nephilim. Dodgeball, junior high. Do I have to play against you? I mean, the guy was like huge. How do you get to be six foot six in junior high? He's Nephilim. I'm convinced of it. So they're looking into the promised land and they see this, and what do they do? Remember? Do they respond, hey, God, look what he did in Egypt. 
Certainly God keeps his word. Is that how they respond? No. They respond in fear. What happened to our God is bigger than your God's? And so what do they do? I'll tell you what they do. Numbers 14.4. They grumble, they complain, and in fear they say, appoint a leader. Let's return to Egypt. What? We don't like this Moses guy anymore. He's going to get us killed. We've been hungry, we've been thirsty, we've been in the desert, and now he's going to take us into this land that supposedly God promised, and we're going to get killed by those big people. They're bigger than us, they're stronger than us, they're more numerous than us. How could we ever conquer them? Let's go back to slavery. Just because you had food there, that's what they're thinking. It's amazing. They're going to turn tail and run. And of course, because they rejected God's promise in Numbers 14, they're disciplined. They're told, every single one of you that did not believe me, and again, of the spies, who were the two that were faithful? Who were the two? Joshua and Caleb. All y'all, the others, did I say it right? I know I'm from California, but I'm trying. All the others. God is saying all y'all, except for Joshua and Caleb, you're going to go back into the wilderness for 40 years, and guess what? You're going to die. We're going to leave your bones in the wilderness, and the next generation gets to do a do-over. <laughs> 40 years later, you come back, and we'll see where your heart is. That's the discipline. Now, here's my question. Why didn't God remove these trials along the journey? If the whole point of freeing them from slavery was to get them safely to the promised land? Have you ever thought about that? Can God remove obstacles? Is God in the business of removing obstacles? Yeah. I mean, if he could part the waters of the Red Sea, couldn't he remove every obstacle, bring the Israelites directly into the promised land of Canaan with no problem, no challenge, no difficulty? I mean, God could have removed all of those people before they got there. Hey, look, a house. It's mine. Hey, look, a cow. My cow. Who owns it? I don't know. God took care of them. It's mine now. Couldn't God have done that? Yes. Why didn't he? God can save you and me. He can speed us across our journey through the wilderness of life, take us right to the promised land of heaven, but he doesn't, does he? Why? Let's jump 40 years ahead to read some of Moses' final words before the nation of Israel finally does get to enter into the promised land. And again, in Deuteronomy 8, the context is they've already crossed from the Red Sea to the promised land, rejected God, been disciplined. They've already been in the wilderness 40 years, and now they're back in the promised land, ready to go in the second time, this whole new generation. And this is what Moses has to say to them. In fact, this is probably the words of, of the last week of Moses' life. Because again, Moses even didn't get to go into the promised land. Joshua led them. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, and let's read this together. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And even though I'm going to be focusing on verse 2 this morning, I think it's still helpful to read these six verses just to understand the context. Moses 
says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. Now, what do you think Moses is talking about there? You realize you don't have any of your fathers here? They're all dead in the wilderness? Why are they dead in the wilderness? They didn't do this. If you want to live, do it God's way. Is that a good message for them to hear? Absolutely. Verse 2. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Who was leading them? Who? Were they wandering around aimlessly? The luck of the draw? No, it was the Lord leading them. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, and he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear it on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Verse 6, therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You want to live? You want to receive this covenant promise that God made to you? Then do it God's way. Fear him. Honor him. Obey him. So God tells this new generation this. But then in verse 2, he explains why God purposely disciplined them by bringing them through this 40-year trial in the desert. All the way from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, back into the wilderness, and now back. So let's look at verse 2, where he gives us two of the purposes of testing, which we're going to examine together this morning. Now what is the first purpose of testing? We find it at the beginning of verse 2, to humble them. To humble them. It says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you. This was a pretty easy outline to come up with. You want to know why he did it? You need humility. Now think about this. How did God bring about humility in their life? I'll tell you how. He gave them a very realistic awareness of their dependence upon him for all their needs. Being in a desert for 40 years will do that to you. There's no shelter from the heat. There's no water to ease your thirst. There's no food to take away the pang of hunger. There's no Walmart to replace the worn-out shoes and clothes. I mean, can you imagine a life without Walmart? I say no. I've been living it for eight and a half years in Albania. There is no Walmart anywhere in Europe. It's horrifying. I really like Walmart. Think about that. You're in the desert for 40 years. How do you replace your sandals and your clothes? And again, Moses reminds them, hey, did any of those things wear out? No. God was with them, even in the wilderness. Israel had nowhere to turn for help, but where? God, we need you. 
God, I know we just said this last week, but we need you. God, I need you. Who are they dependent on? The Lord. Alone. Who provided water for their thirst? God did. Who provided manna? You know what manna means in Hebrew? What is it? No, really, what is it? There's bread falling from heaven. What is it? Well, what are we going to call it? Let's call it what is it? God brought it from heaven. And birds, meat, I mean, God did it all. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. That would have been really cool. God leading them. They were dependent upon the Lord. That's why in verse 3, Moses reminds them that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. They receive bread through no effort of their own, but solely through the sovereign decree of God. Therefore, it wasn't actually the bread that was keeping them alive. What was keeping them alive? The word of the Lord. God. And again, especially in the beginning, when they left Egypt, did they come loaded? Yeah, I mean, God even allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. They probably had bread and supplies when they left Egypt to go on the first journey to the Promised Land. They probably had stuff. Moses is reminding them, whether it came from Egypt or whether it fell from the sky, it all comes from God. It's a good lesson the church probably should learn here in America. It's all the Lord's. In fact, Exodus 16.35 says that God provided manna for 40 years. The whole time, God provided. God humbled them by forcing them to look to Him for help through each miraculous provision. Now go back to Exodus 15. I already read verse 22. Let's see what happens. And again, remember, what just happened? Parting of the Red Sea. That's pretty fresh in their minds. Exodus 15, 23. So they're in the wilderness. They find no water. Verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. What do you think uh, Marah means in Hebrew? Bitter. Very creative. Bitter water, we'll call it bitter. It means bitterness. Verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Moses, you brought us out here. What are you going to do about this problem? Then he, being Moses, cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, threw it in the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and regulation. And there he, what? What does it say? He tested them. He tested them. Let the testing begin. Ding, 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 ding. Who's ready? How did they respond to this test? Pass, fail. When they encounter this test, what would a pass look like? Think about this. God just miraculously saved them, parting the Red Sea, all of the plagues. 
Not only does he free them, but he frees them with all of Egypt's stuff. And they're going to the promised land. What would a past have looked like? God, we don't have any water. And this water stinks. And if I drink it, it's probably going to make me sick. Lord, would you please help us? We need you. How do they respond? What do they do? They grumble. They grumble. They complain. So what does God do? I would have just struck them all dead. Aren't you glad I'm not God? Or your father. (laughs) Yeah, think about that. What does God do? Hey, Moses, see that tree? Pick it up. Chuck it in the water. And watch what happens. Next time you're camping and you run out of water and your husband forgets to bring those little tablets that make water clean, I wouldn't try this. I'm just, I'm just saying. It's probably not going to work for you in the same way. Again, do you normally think about chucking a tree into a dirty, nasty pond to make it drinkable? Why did God do it that way? So Israel would know, this is not Moses doing this. This is not even the tree doing it. Who's doing it? God. It's a miracle. And notice, he doesn't just give them Houston tap water. I mean, what does it say? They were bitter. But then afterwards, what happens? The waters in verse 25 became sweet. Avion, fresh from the French Alps. Oui, oui. That's cool. I mean, it wasn't just okay to drink. It was like sweet, pure. It's probably the most pure water these people had drunk in a long time. Because God did it. I think there's many times, we could, if we had the time, we could go through the story. There's many times Israel's thirst was quenched through God's miraculous provision. And yet still, how did they respond? They complained. They argued. And even on the verge of threatening to stone Moses in Exodus 17.4, it got deadly. That's how bad it got. Think about that, kids. Next time you want to complain about something, eventually you will murder your parents. Because that's where complaining goes. I don't know if you ever thought about that. That's a, another sermon. You have to come back for that one. How complaining leads to murder. And you would think that they would begin to see a pattern of God's faithfulness throughout the testing process. Israel's life was not characterized by immediately turning to God in prayer for solutions to their problems. It wasn't. So God humbled them. He humbled them. And that's often the way it is with our pride. We're not even aware we need to be humbled. Isn't that the whole point? Does a proud person know he or she needs to learn, needs to grow, needs to change? No. Why? Have you ever tried to teach a proud person something? Is that easy? Is that even possible? Why does a proud person have a hard time hearing truth from you for the purpose of learning or growing? Because they already know everything. They already know it. What are you going to teach them that they don't already know? That's not humility. But because God loves us, he humbles us so that he can give grace to the humble, James 4, 6. Again, he's opposed to the proud, 
but to the humble He gives grace. And that's why Hebrews 12, 6 says that for those whom the Lord loves, He what? Disciplines. You know, I thought I was humbly dependent upon the Lord as a pastor, as a missionary, as a father, as a husband. been a Christian a long time. Then this trial began to reveal my pride. Especially in the early days. I'm in Albania. There's no help. We're trying to figure out how to get back. And I'm realizing I am not in control. I'm not. We're in Albania trying to buy tickets to come back to the States. Trying to figure out what hospital to go to. Tickets are astronomically expensive. Almost had to sell Brianna off just to pay for it. We realize it might not be as easy to get Shelly into a good hospital. We have no doctor referral. We have no contacts. Our symptoms are getting worse. And we have no idea what a 20-hour flight is going to do to the tumor or her brain. I mean, for a moment there, I was thinking, if we put her on a plane and send her back to America, is she going to die on the plane? Well, needless to say, I was a little tempted to worry. A little. I was tempted to get angry at God. Why would you move us all the way to Tirana, Albania, to serve you just to bring this? This is obviously not part of your plan. It's not part of my plan. I was tempted to complain about how long everything was taking, how, how slow the process was. You know how it is when you see someone that you love in, in pain and you can't do anything? I'm not in control. God humbled me by reminding me that he alone is the one who is the great physician. He alone is God. He alone knows what's best. He alone has the power to cause all things, all things, even brain tumors, to work for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. In fact, even in Exodus 15, 26, God reminds the Israelites. He says, I am the great healer. Even in Exodus 15, 26, he told them that. You see, I couldn't fix my wife's brain tumor. But I knew the one that could. Amen? Now, it's important to know, we don't accidentally wander into the wilderness of trials. I know sometimes you may think that. You may think, well, it's just chance. It's bad luck. It just happened. Again, Exodus 15, 25 tells us God tested them. Even in Deuteronomy 8, it says God was leading them bringing each one of these tests, each one of these trials into their life for a purpose, for a time, for a plan. God brings us into the trial. He tests us. And when we've learned what we needed to learn, He brings us out the other side, hopefully more dependent upon Him than when we went in. See, when the winds of trials blow against us, it's, it's then that our spiritual roots grow deep and our trust in God is strengthened. And again, I just love the picture of Psalm 1. For the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night, what does the psalmist say they are like? A tree firmly planted. The roots are deep by streams of water prospering. 
the leaf does not wither. It's a beautiful picture that when our trust and our hope and our dependence is in the Lord and the Word of God is speaking to us by the Spirit in us, there's hope, there's confidence. We don't have all the answers. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know the one that does. And in that humility, we say, God, what do I need to learn from this? What would you have for me? How should I respond? I'm having a hard time thinking rightly. I'm having a hard time controlling my fear. Help me to respond rightly. What does your word say? See, trials help us see who we really are and who or what we really trust. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 or 6. First Peter 5, starting in verse 6, says this. Humble yourselves, therefore. Where? Under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Does it feel like God cares for you when you're in the midst of a trial? When your heart is darkened, and you feel hopeless, does it feel like God cares for you? No. And there's where we have to not let our feelings control us, but we have to go back to what is true and let the Word of God speak truth to us. And so Peter says, look, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God is in control. He is able to exalt you, to bring you out of this at the proper time cast your anxiety upon him. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be anxious. Why? Because he cares for you. He's with you. He will not abandon you. You may be in the wilderness. You may be wondering, where is God in this? He is with you. In fact, often when we're in the midst of that crucible, we're the ones who leave God. What's the lesson in this? To learn from God's tests, we must be humble. This may seem obvious, but again, as I said earlier, it's important for us to remember that the proud don't learn. Not only do the proud don't learn, but when you're in the midst of a trial or a test, who are you dependent upon? The Lord? Or yourself? That's why the Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Proud, thinking he knows it all. He's wise in his own eyes. You see that man? What does it say? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Some of us can hear this message, go to lunch. Not 30 minutes, 45 minutes after hearing the word of God. Go out that door find ourselves complaining about ministry, finances, your spouse, your kids, your boss. It's almost as if we hadn't read these scriptures. Just like Israel. See, when you're being tested by the Lord, humble yourself. Submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. Ask God to reveal how you need to change. 
how you need to think, how you should respond, and then ask Him to help you change. Well, there's more that can be said, but let's move on to the next purpose. The first was to humble us, to put our dependence upon God. But there's a second purpose of God's testing. Turn back to Deuteronomy 8. This is found in the last part of verse 2. What does it say? You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you, and here it is, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See, the second purpose of testing is to expose the true nature of our faith, and that's what he's doing here with Israel. He says to know what was in your heart. God was exposing the true nature of their faith from their heart. Now, did God already know what was in their heart? Did he? Did God like, um, excuse me, I know I created you and everything and I'm almighty, but uh, what are you thinking right now? Is that what's happening here? No. And the rest of the word tells us he's all-knowing. 1 John 3.20 reminds us that God knows everything. Even Job 37.16 describes... God is perfect in knowledge. And of course, lest we forget Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God. He sees all. He knows all. He knows what you do. He knows even why you do it. He knows your motive. He knows what you say and why you say it. He knows what's in your heart. He sees it all. He knows it all. So why is God testing them to see what's in their heart? Because it wasn't for him. Who was it for? It was to help them see what was in their heart. To help them know, am I really humbly dependent upon the Lord? What is the status, the condition of my faith in God? And how was their heart exposed? Well, notice Moses continues. To know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. Notice there's a connection between our faith and our obedience. It's not enough to say, God, I trust you. God, I love you. God, I believe in you. And then not live it. The faith that is in our heart drives us to either obey or disobey. If I have faith in me, why would I do it God's way? If I trust in myself, my wisdom, my power, my ability, my money, my resources, why would I do it his way? My way's been working all these years. It's going to keep working out for me, right? Our heart is exposed in whether or not we obey God or not. See, true faith results in humble obedience to God's commands. Because I trust that when God commands me to do something, that he knows what's best for me. Even if I don't agree, even if I think I know something better, I trust God. So God uses these difficult trials to put us under pressure and to show us who we ultimately listen to. Now turn back to Exodus 16. I want to demonstrate this for us. Exodus 16 I call this really a practical application of this. 
Exodus 16, 1 through 4. This is the, the hunger. So then he set out from Elim all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Why? Verse 3, the sons of Israel said to them, I love this, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (gasps) Can you see it? I mean, these guys are thespians. Woe is me. Just whining. So how does God respond in verse 4? Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. That I may what? What does it say? That I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So what happens? Well, 16 to 19, God gives very clear instructions. Gather it, eat. He made it very clear what they were supposed to do. Verse 19, let no man leave any of it until morning. Is that pretty clear? Take what you need, but don't leave any of it. Verse 18 makes it clear God fully provides. Whatever a man's needs were, it met, was met. And in verse 20, notice what it says. But they did not listen to Moses. And if you don't listen to Moses, who are you not listening to? Just to be clear. Again, who is Moses speaking for? God. So if you don't listen to Moses, you're not listening to God. But they did not listen to Moses, verse 20. And some left part of it until morning. It bred worms, became foul. Moses was angry with them. That's an understatement. Wow. Israel struggles with this too. God makes it clear. He says, here's how you do it. Here's what you say. Here's what you think. Here's how you respond. And they said, no, I don't think we're going to do it that way, God. We have a better way. See, God puts us in the wilderness to test us, to expose the true nature of our faith. Will we truly humble ourselves? Will we depend upon the Lord and His faithful promises and obey? Or will we, in our pride, attempt to fix problems our own way, using our own resources? Whoa, 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 God, you don't understand the kind of husband that I have. He is the most unloving, unforgiving man I have ever met. You expect me to forgive him? You expect me to love him? You Submit? I don't think so. Lord, you don't understand how badly I need this money. The IRS has plenty of it. And I know I'm fudging the numbers just a little bit on my tax return that was due just a little while ago. Wait, the 18th. It's coming up tomorrow. No pressure. You don't understand how badly I need it, Lord. You don't understand my financial situation. So I think it's best that I take matters in my own hand. And on and on it goes. See, through obedience, we prove that we believe 
God's desired response to our trials is better than anything we could come up with on our own. And again, where are those responses found? In the Word of God. In the Word. You see, we can point an accusing finger at the Israelites, can't we? In fact, I'm tempted to do it. But the reality is you and I are really no different. It's easy to say we trust and believe in God until the difficulties come. When it's sunny outside, hey, God, I love you, I'm following you. Rain clouds on the horizon, oh, what's going to happen? And I'm in the midst of the hurricane. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? See, the minute Shell got off the plane here in Houston, we landed at uh, George Bush Airport. She could hardly walk without falling over. I mean, she was literally holding onto my arm and just leaning. And from the moment she got off the plane, she developed this debilitating headache, which she still has, actually. It hasn't gone away. It's been nonstop from October. In fact, it got so bad when we landed in early October that we had to take her to the ER at MD Anderson Cancer Center the next day. They admitted her. They ran all these tests. I mean, I didn't know some of these tests existed, which I'm thankful for. And for months, again, you know, you've been with us on this journey. For months, some of the world's best neurologists tried to figure out what this thing was. For months, we didn't have a clear diagnosis. We didn't know if it was cancer. We didn't know if it was going to kill her. We didn't know what, other than the fact that it just wasn't growing. didn't seem to be growing. We didn't know what kind of long-term effects it was going to have. The medical bills grew. Man, I was shocked the first time I saw our medical bill. I'm sorry, is that an extra zero? Is that supposed to be there? <laughs> Tumor stayed the same, and we waited. I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting at all. Why do I not like to wait? Because who's in control? Not me. It's hard. Through this, I was tempted to focus on everything that didn't go right. All the challenging circumstances. I was tempted to focus on on the fact that uh, I was grumbling and complaining. I was struggling with that. Again, God, we thought we were going to go back to Albania in December, and we're still here. What are you doing? What are we doing here? God brought me into the desert. He exposed the true nature of my faith by showing me how often I focus on the circumstances that surround me. That happened with Israel. Exodus 16, the test of hunger. They allowed their circumstances to determine their attitude. By focusing on the circumstances, their initial response was what? Grumbling, complaining, criticizing, eventually death threats. Again, that message is coming, kids. It was all there. They had no faith that the God who had just miraculously saved them from Egypt could meet their needs. And their complaining mouths revealed what was truly in their hearts. Because the reality is, is that when God begins to squeeze, whatever's on the inside comes out. Right? If it's in there, if you think it, if you believe it, when the, the pressure of trials come upon your life, it comes out. Because from the mouth speaks what? The heart. They're grumbling against Moses. 
They're really grumbling against God. In fact, even Moses said, Exodus 17, 2, he says, why do you test the Lord? You're coming after me, but what you're really doing is testing God. And sometime soon, his patience is going to come to an end. You know, that's when the earth starts opening up and starts swallowing people whole. Ah! That's why junior high boys love to read the Old Testament. Why are you testing the Lord? They were determined to focus on their circumstances instead of trusting in God's faithfulness and gracious provision. And see, in our situation with Shelley, if I had kept focusing on these circumstances, I would have been tempted to worry, been tempted to complain against God. My weak faith would have been demonstrated through disobedience. I would have violated Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining, all things. See, rather than focus on the difficult circumstances, we found ourselves in, we began to pray according to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. What does that say? Be anxious for nothing as long as it's not a tumor in your wife's brain. Be anxious for nothing. Really, God? Nothing? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Everything, everything. Oh, everything, everything. Okay. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace that peace, which surpasses all comprehension, what will it do? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, we began to experience that peace. We took our eyes off of all of this and said, okay, God, I don't fully understand what you're doing, but I trust you. Help us. Help us to walk in simple faith, simple obedience. We began to pray that way. We began striving to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. What verse is that? Proverbs 3, 5. God answered our prayers. God answered your prayers. In fact, it's an amazing story. I don't have time to tell you. But basically, a childhood friend of Shelley's sister was at a stoplight. She was late for something. She was on her phone because she was late for this thing. She gets on Facebook sees Shelley's post, well, guess where she works? MD Anderson Cancer Center. And guess who she knows? All of the brain and spine surgeons at MD Anderson. She finds out about this. She remembers Shelley and her sister Stephanie and says, hey, do you want me to call the best tumor brain surgeon at MD Anderson and see if he'd be willing to see you? You know, we need to pray about this. And... We'll get back to you soon. I'm leaning toward yes, but yes, please. I mean, who was that? That was the Lord. I mean, you might want to credit Facebook, but it was God. I'm thankful for Facebook's role in all of that, but it was God. He agrees. Just like that, we have an appointment with one of the world's best brain surgeons. Five months, the MRIs reveal the tumor is not really growing. Finally, it starts to grow in February. The surgeon says, okay, we need to come in and take it out. March 14th, he does the surgery. He gets it all. Finally, we have a pathology report. It comes back as a low-grade level one tumor, a ganglioglioma. I had to practice how to say that. It's not cancer. Small, about 1% where it grows back, sometimes it comes back as cancer. But the treatment was surgery. 
No radiation, no chemo. Shelly's recovering. She's getting better every day. Praise God. I get a little excited about that. And again, who did it? God. God cared for us every step in the way. And you know why? Because God is in the business of doing amazing things for His glory. Amen? And sometimes it takes a trial, it takes a testing, it takes a squeezing for us to see that. What's the lesson in all of this? Don't let bad habits rule your response to trials. The Israelites loved Egypt. They would be satisfied with nothing less. You read their story. They keep mentioning, hey, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. This is too hard. We want to go back to Egypt. They loved it more than they loved the Lord. In fact, I think this is why God led them through the wilderness before He even got them to the promised land. The first time, I think that's why He brought them through the wilderness. To help them see you love yourselves way too much. Are you willing to commit to follow me? I am Yahweh. I'm your Lord. He didn't allow them to enter. They weren't willing to believe him, to believe his promises. They needed to stop delighting in the lesser pleasures of the world and return to the delighting in the Lord. So what did God do? Took them right back into the wilderness. See, the reason why we can't respond to trials with joy it's because we've trained ourselves to let our circumstances steal our joy. Have you ever thought about practically how you're supposed to respond in joy? Consider it joy when you encounter trials. What? Does that make any sense? Joy? I don't think so, Lord. That must be a translation error. Yes, joy. That's what James 1, 2-4 is talking about. And see, instead of prayerfully anticipating how the Lord is going to help us, God, I don't know what you're going to do. Even this is Pastor Amy. God is up to something good. You ever heard him say that? Amen. I don't know what it is. God's up to something good. And instead of trusting in that, what do we do? We begin to worry. We begin to complain. We begin to doubt whether God even cares. In these past few months have been some of our sweetest times of prayer and communion with God together. And some of you have read Shelley's blog posts. You've read what she's expressing in her faith in this journey. And for some reason, you don't go ask her this. You come and ask me this. Okay, we've read the blog. She's so full of joy and peace. How is she really doing? How is she really doing? And I'm like, well, you read it, right? That's it. No, 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 no. I know what she's saying. How is she really doing? Uh, uh. Why was my wife so filled with joy and peace and contentment? In fact, she has a new name for it. I don't know if this is, you know, I'm going to have to copyright this. I don't know. She calls it crisis faith. What God does to your faith in the midst of a crisis is sweet because it strips you away of all of the things that you hold to and cling to, and all of a sudden she is faced. She went, whew. One morning she woke up, she said, I might see Jesus tomorrow. And I can't wait. She was so filled with joy. 
I'm telling you that was the opposite of what I was feeling. Her heart was already in heaven. Consider it joy when you encounter the trials and the testing. Because no matter what God takes, no matter what happens in those trials, what do you still have at the end of the day? Christ, the hope of heaven, the privilege to live every moment of every day for His glory. And so Paul can say, I'm struggling here because I really long to be in heaven with the Lord, but at the same time, I, I, I still really want to keep working with you, and I love you, and, and I'm just struggling with this. kind of helps you understand. It's just the love of God. Because again, what does James 1, 2 to 4 say will happen? Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith will produce what? Endurance. And what is the perfect result of endurance? Christ-likeness. To be like Christ. So when God's testing reveals patterns of sin, like maybe I idolize my wife more than Christ. I had to face that. Do I love my wife more than Jesus? Because I had to face the reality that maybe God was going to take her from me. But when God uses this testing and the trials to reveal these kind of things, you repent of it, you begin to work on these new biblical habits that honor the Lord. And you let God's word comfort you and give you direction. And your faith will grow, as will your joy in the midst of the trial. Well, this morning we have examined two of testing's purposes. To humble us and to expose the true nature of our faith. Shelley is recovering slowly but steadily. Praise the Lord. We hope the headache will go away sometime soon. But you know what? If it doesn't, we trust the Lord. And you know, the reality is the doctor said you're cancer-free now, but you may not be tomorrow. Because this thing can come back. And you know what? If it does, bring it on. Because we got God on our side. Now, I hope I'll say that if it happens. It's easy to say it now with a pathology report that says it's not cancer. But I know God is never going to allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able But with every testing, with every trial, he will always provide a way of escape that I may be able to endure it. God has used this trial to show me I am not as spiritually mature as I thought I was. Now, I know you knew that all along, but it took a little while for me to figure it out. However, I can honestly say that I am growing and learning through each trial. God will provide. Church, do you believe that? God will provide. He knows what you're going through. He is with you. He will not leave you. And if you're in pain, and if you're without hope, and if you're struggling with depression, God will provide. Trust in Him. Humble yourself. Obey Him. And just wait to see what He's going to do in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a challenging topic for us because we don't like trials, and we admit it. I admit it. We don't like testing. We like it when it's sunny outside. But Lord God, we recognize that you have a purpose even through difficulty, even through circumstances that we would never choose on our own. 
And this morning, we have been reminded that even through trials and testing, you are still with us. You have a purpose. And ultimately, that purpose is for our own good. Lord, help us to understand that. And let us respond in the midst of those trials with grace, with greater confidence in you, because we know we can boldly come to your throne to find grace and help in our time of need because of Christ, because he is where our hope is found. And so I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is struggling, that maybe is even thinking about giving up, giving in, whatever that looks like for their situation, Lord, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit to minister to them that they would come to you humbly and say, God, help. That maybe they would come and speak to someone here in the church this morning and ask, humble themselves even there and say, you know, I need help. Will you help me? And that this would be the kind of church that loves on each other in that way. Lord, you are a great God. You are a faithful God. And you are worthy of our obedience. Let us be those kind of people. To your glory we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.